Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars. But it's mostly about Star Wars. Kevin, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm feeling good. It's what, Monday, I guess. I don't know. It feels like Wednesday already. It's already been a long week and it's only been a day in, but it's a good week. Every day's Wednesday, except now there are Fridays in our universe because we have um, episodes of The Mandalorian Season 2 to look forward to. That we do, and look forward to them, I do. This uh, this last one was probably the first, I think the first episode of The Mandalorian that had like some online controversy. There were Most people liked all of the previous, what, nine episodes, and this was the first one that some people had some issue with, and I personally didn't, but I get why they did. Right. And obviously, we know that this is super early and some people prefer to, you know, just binge watch an entire season at once. So we're not going to go into it. But I agree that this one is a little bit different type of episode. And I'm hopeful that we get back on track for episode three. Yeah, I do think I'm really looking forward to us being able to talk about it because I do think it had some really good different takes on relationships between beings that uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about someday agreed agreed and considering we're supposed to talk about relationships periodically that's something we can look forward to in the future that's right all right so where did we leave off so where did we leave off we left in our last episode we were talking about the life and times of Sheev Palpatine and when we left him he had just become Chancellor of the Republic so you know from a movie standpoint this is right at the end of episode one um, but from, you know, from the, the lifetime of the Republic, this is before the Clone Wars have started. Um, and this was really in response to, you know, two big things that are happening in the, in the Republic. One is just sort of the bureaucratic mire that, that the Galactic Senate is in and the inability for them to get anything done. And sort of the catalyst of his rise was the incident, um, at Naboo. And so at this point we find, you know, um, Chancellor Palpatine now is running the Senate and um, the Naboo incident is sort of in the past, but a few things are brewing in the background and are going to lead to more trouble. Right. So what's interesting is that he basically has already decided how everything's going to end. He's just slow playing how he's going to get there. And so one of the things that we see him very slowly play out is his manipulation of Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. I mean, again, at this point, you know, when he became chancellor, Anakin is just a young boy, but he just like, you know, the Jedi recognized that the force was really, really strong with this kid. Um, uh, and, and I'm not sure that he was aware of it at the time. But, you know, like we said in the last episode, it is likely or at least possible that his experiments with Darth Plagueis on the force created Anakin. And, you know, he was as he's as aware of the uh, prophecy of the one as anybody. And so, you know, he's kind of seeing that. And, and I think if you if you look at the prophecy of the one from a Sith perspective, um, you know, their perspective is that it would go exactly as it did. And so I think he could be seeing him as part of his story of of getting to, um, you know, balance in the force from a Sith perspective. And so, uh, you know, he started very early his manipulations and, and tracking of young Anakin Skywalker through his Jedi career. Right. And, and that's an uh, interesting word that you used was balance. So remember, we were told there's always two Sith, you know, who was killed. Was it the Master of the Apprentice when we lost Darth Maul? Um, and, and so when we get to the point that we see in uh, episode two with the Attack of the Clones, we've already skipped over the point at which we know that all the moving pieces that Palpatine had in play to have his backup uh, apprentice now count dooku take over he he's already done all of that so we saw those uh machinations um happening leading up even when he still was you know hiding uh maul you know in in some alley somewhere so you know what what we see at this point now is the full-fledged you know master apprentice relationship between uh, Palpatine and Dooku we see and I think you mentioned it uh, before we were recording that uh, Palpatine does such a great job of separating out when he is Darth Sidious or Lord Sidious and when he is you know uh, Chancellor Palpatine and so that that's really a very he's got two different hats for the jobs he's doing yeah, he's he's probably better at that um, than really anybody when we look, especially from the, the Sith side, 
Um, and yeah, and so, you know, if you think about it over the 18 years that elapsed between episode one and episode two, he's already set up the Grand Army. I thought Arm- that was 10 years. Not yeah, 18. sorry, 10, yeah, okay. sorry. Over the 10 years, you're right, because Anakin starts eight, at eight and ends up at about 18. He's not zero when, <laughs> when the movie's there. So right. over those 10 years, right, a generation of clones has grown up. Um, you know, Dooku, who had left the Jedi Council around that time, has become a full-fledged Sith. Um, and, you know, he's starting to, to lay the groundwork for the war. And, you know, at this time, he's also created the Separatist Alliance, although they haven't all quite separated from the New Republic or from the, the Republic yet. Um, sorry, I've been reading episode nine stuff. And so it's the New Republic in my head. Um, but, you know, he's got all these things set up. And the and the real last tipping point is he, you know, needs to create the war that will drive a wedge between people and the Jedi so that he can get enough clones so that he can execute Order 66 so that he can wipe out the Jedi and take over. And like that is, you know, when you talk about um, a politician or somebody playing three-dimensional chess or whatever, this is this is some some deep forethought that he's put into this whole plan and, you know, does not kill, care about the billions of beings that are going to die as a result. No, he most certainly does not. All he cares about is his ultimate goal of obtaining power and, and fortune and more power. And and maybe also some more deep understanding of the Force. Although he does, you know, eventually kind of reflect that he feels that he's learned all there is to learn of the Force because he is strong with the dark side. Yeah, it's it's actually interesting that you bring that up because I think that's a big difference between him and really Darth Plagueis and even Darth Tenebris before him and Bane and a lot of the other uh, Dark Lords of the Sith that really were more interested in the deeper knowledge of the Force and then using that for to increase their power. I think Palpatine may have been, and this may be why he's the most successful of the Sith, is that his interest was far more in obtaining long life, infinite life, and political power and dominance over the galaxy and he saw the dark side of the force as a tool to that end, not as the end itself. And I think that some of the other Sith saw the dark side as, as the end and lost sight of what their ultimate goal was. And I think that's why he was able to kill them all. Completely agree. Um, you know, and the whole time while he's this insidious, insidious type person, um, he's also unusually popular. He's well-liked. He's enacting policies that seem to be appreciated by the Republic. Um, or else he's managed to convince the senators through manipulation that they should appreciate it. So while there is some infighting within the Senate, we, we see led by um, Bail Organa and Senator uh, Padme Amidala. But we, you know, for the most part, he's widely popular. Yeah. I mean, such, you know, so popular that his emergency powers keep getting extended. People really trust him to prosecute the war against the separatists. They don't see, um, you know, his rule as oppressive. And, you know, this whole time he kind of just goes about and he has this very humble public persona and keeps saying, you know, I don't want these powers, but I'll accept them. I don't want these powers, but I'll accept them. He really wants the powers, obviously. But um, but yeah, he does a really good job of sort of running the Republic and making sure that by the end of this, that the people and the Senate are not going to turn on him. Like, and again, he's got this eye for the future around, you know, when he does consolidate power, what is it, what is it going to look like and what are the risks? And, and one of the things that he tries to do is, is remain relatively popular so that he does not have the risk of rebellion that ultimately unseats him. Right. And so a few of the things that he has to look out for um, is, is making sure that he's got these emergency powers. And, and our, our good buddy Jar Jar Binks, uh, he kind of screws that stuff up there. So he, Jar Jar thinks he's helping, but he says wrong. Yeah. Yeah, he says super wrong. And, you know, and that's, you know, that's his role in the show um, is to sort of be that dupe. But yes, Jar Jar is ultimately the one that gets him the initial the initial powers and then sort of stays on his side and continues to sort of rally people um, to continue to give him powers. Um, I think the other big thing is that, you know, he is always on the lookout for potential rivals 
and making sure that they don't remain, uh, that they don't create any threats for him. You know, he's got his plan. And while he is really, really good, and we see this through the Clone Wars, he is really good at turning all sorts of things into opportunities. He is also um, very cautious to try to make it so that he doesn't have to. And I think that's one of his, you know, kind of co-biggest skills is the ability to foresee problems and avoid them, but also turn problems into opportunities. He does a little bit of both. Right. That's what I was saying last time we spoke was that, you know, you got to be a little bit jealous of how good he is at always being able to use any challenge that comes his way as an opportunity. So and he does that. And however, though, he does recognize that sometimes there are challenges that he maybe can't use to his benefit. And one of those was the fact that very similarly to how uh, Palpatine got his own apprentice with Maul, uh, when when he was Plagueis's apprentice, uh, Dooku has his own apprentice with with Asajj Ventress, and Ventress is becoming very strong in the Force. Dooku is enjoying kind of a little bit of a side power rush, kind of heading up the Separatist movement, and is starting to have ambitions of his own. Yeah, and so this is you know kind of in the middle toward the end of the Clone Wars. Um, you know, Asajj Ventress has held her own against Anakin and Obi-Wan together multiple times. Um, you know, and like you said, Dooku is sort of growing in his power and is starting to think about overthrowing Sidious because, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, Dooku was really never, I, I feel like he was never really a full on true believer in at least in Sidious's vision of the Sith. Like he really was, you know, he left the Jedi Order because he felt that there were things wrong with the Republic and he wanted to fix that. He didn't really want to dominate it. And so, um, you know, and so this basically led to uh, Sidious ordering him to uh, kill Asajj. Right. And really, like you were saying, he's a disillusioned Jedi, not a Dark Lord of the Sith. That's right. And he happens to, as a disillusioned Jedi, wind up being the apprentice, but he's really just a placeholder. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's how Sidious sees him as well. Like he basically needs somebody to play in that role. And so he sees him as that. And so when he sees him getting his own apprentice and potentially getting ready to take over, he basically orders him to uh, kill Asajj Ventress um, and take her out of the equation, which... Um, Dooku does very half-heartedly, right? I mean, he basically doesn't really kill her, but he, he, you know, in a battle between her and Anakin and Obi-Wan, he just orders everybody else to abandon her and leave her to her fate, assuming that they're going to kill her, which is not a super good assumption for him. No, he essentially excommunicates her. He creates another enemy. And Ventress is out there somewhere in the galaxy, to the best of our knowledge, last time we left her. That's right. And that's a whole other story that we're not going to get into today. We're talking about Palpatine. But but the point here is that, you know, he saw that rising threat. He also, um, you know, Maul does a pretty good job of hiding himself from um, from. Uh, Sidious, but ultimately he goes a little bit too far when he kills um, the Duchess of Mandalore. It creates a tremor in the force that brings down Sidious and also reveals to Sidious the existence of Savage Opress, who was, you know, sort of what Asajj created as a, as a revenge vehicle against Dooku. Um, Maul and Asajj were hanging out together on Mandalore and that brought down Sidious on them. Right, right. And so when, you know, Sidious, anytime he looks around and he sees a threat, he immediately takes care of business. He does not dawdle. And I think that that is the other aspect that he did really well in comparison to the Jedi Council. The Jedi Council does a lot of dawdling, a lot of meditating, a lot of going, wow, we'll have to think about this and see how it unfolds. No, they need to not think about these things and see how they unfold and actually realize that there's a Dark Lord of the Sith trying to take over the peace of the galaxy. And instead, um, what Sidious is able to do in his role as Chancellor is just so, so much doubt amongst the stability of the Jedi Council to question their their role within the galaxy. They used to be the peacekeepers and now they are all generals. Um, and, and so what we see in uh, the final season of Clone Wars that 
came out, it seems like a million years ago, but I believe it was in 2020. Um, what we see there is that the Jedi basically left the people behind. They they were, um, you know, these generals that they were out in battle and they were revered so highly. But essentially, the people are, are living in poverty and, and struggling and the Senate has become corrupt and the Jedi aren't keeping peace. And so these people are easily taken advantage of and the continuation of oppression within the galaxy just continues to magnify and Sidious and as Palpatine is able to just continue to accumulate power because he's sucked it up from everyone else. Yeah, I mean, he does a really good job in in, um, you know, his sort of political war against the Jedi and making them you know, kind of look like the bad guys by overtaxing their resources. And, you know, you you almost want to say that that was an unintentional side effect of the war, but I believe that that was an entirely intentional um, effect of of getting them to be in charge of of the the army of the Republic. And that's sort of modeled after what happened to them in the last great Sith war. And I know this is sort of legends canon, but basically the generals of the last great Sith uh, Jedi war back when, before the rule of two, when, when the Sith uh, had a whole army, the, basically the leaders of the Jedi military, um, they, they went to the dark side and not a, not a very direct way, but in a very depressing way and ended up getting their entire army and the entire Sith army destroyed by Darth Bane. And so, you know, I think he sort of played on that same theme of this, just pounding doubt into the people and pounding doubt into the council. And ultimately, and I think Yoda is the, the only one who really realized this and he realized it only too late was that, um, in fighting the war, they had lost the war because there's no way the Jedi can win the war. That's exactly it. There are no winners in war. And unfortunately, you're right. Yoda realizes that far too late. And what we do learn, though, is through watching the Clone Wars, we learn that Anakin believes that there's winners and losers in war. And that makes Anakin that much more pliable for Palpatine to take advantage of him. That's right. And he does a, a masterful job of manipulating Anakin. And, and you know, what's funny about it, and when, when I really think about the way that he worked on Anakin and he worked on Anakin with the Jedi Council, right? So, you know, he did a whole bunch of things of just sort of suggesting and ordering. And, you know, he had those meetings and you see a couple of them in the movies where he says, well, I think, you know, Obi-Wan and Anakin should go. And, and you know, Mace Windu and Yoda say, well, Anakin's not really ready. And he's like, cool, it's decided then they're going to go. And, you know, he just sort of runs over them. And, and again, they're way too polite to you know to sort of argue back on that or to push back and he he does a really good job of manipulating the Anakin and him relationship and the relationship between Anakin and the Jedi Council right in the Jedi Council's face full well knowing that they're seeing what he's doing like he knows that Yoda recognizes that he's doing something he's messing with Anakin's mind and yet they do nothing about it and he ultimately gets you know he achieves the goal he wants because he is willing to just do what he wants to do uh, and no one's there to stop him. Absolutely. And he is by far the most masterful at doing so. Uh, he manipulates situations involving Anakin and Padme. He always knows what's happening. And, and when he looks, the only relationship that he doesn't entirely manipulate is the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan. But that manages to implode because he's, Sidious has managed to enthrall Anakin Skywalker. And so that ability to, you know, just keep him drawn close to him is what destroys the relationship with Obi-Wan. Yeah. And, and I think that he wisely does not try to manipulate that relationship because if he did, then Anakin would not trust him. Right. And so he, you know, he trusts in his whole plan that that will end up the way that he expects. And and in a way, I think it went even, you know, his manipulation of Anakin may have even gone further than he anticipated. I'm not sure that he ever expected that Anakin would turn on Padme and like choke her out and lead to her death, right? I, I don't know what exactly his plan for her in the end was. I imagine that, you know, there's probably a world where he actually wanted her to give birth and have two more Jedi babies to raise and, you know, and turn into, you know, future apprentices or, or, you know, some sort of agents of his. 
Um, and I'm not sure what he's, his exact plan for Padme was. I'm not sure that he really ever anticipated that um, Anakin himself as Vader would, would basically kill her and Obi-Wan and rid him of those problems. But, you know, sometimes he gets his way. Yeah, and he takes advantage of whatever the outcome ultimately is. So a couple of instances in which we see him, uh, you know, fight his way out of the situation Probably, like you said, one of the worst fights in all of the Star Wars movies is the fight between Palpatine and Mace Windu. It's just, it's so cheesy. I don't know what's going on there. Like, I have to assume that this is, you know, sort of out of universe and in the world of the movie is that that was, you know, something where the actors insisted on doing the choreography themselves, but were not able to handle the actual lightsaber combat because it was just, it was such a weird shot, especially because, you know, when, and, and this is, of course, produced out of order. But when you see the way that Sidious fights Maul and Oppress in the Clone Wars, and then you look at his fighting style and just the lame way that he and Mace Windu, who Mace Windu is supposed to be one of the best lightsaber duelists of all time. And they're doing this weird, very open and, you know, weird strokes at each other and everything. It's just it's just a terribly choreographed fight. It's just it's really, really bad. But, you know, it's a pivotal fight and it ultimately results in, you know, um, Palpatine being pinned up against the wall, losing his lightsaber. Mace Windu about to kill him when Anakin busts in and, you know, he unleashes the, the force lightning on Mace Windu. Right. And it's very similar to how we're kind of introduced to... Palpatine at the beginning of that movie which is where you know he, he's being held prisoner if you will by Dooku and and so when he basically tells Anakin to kill Dooku is very similar to how he's telling Anakin to treat Mace Windu and it's odd that you know Anakin believes in right and wrong but believes in both instances that he was right when he clearly did the wrong thing and he even felt as though he had done the wrong thing after he had killed Dooku. He's like, maybe he should have had a trial. Um, and he just doubles down in the behavior. So Palpatine is so good at creating that argument and, and just pulling the threads on Anakin there like that. Well, and I think, you know, it's really, yeah, I agree. I think it's really interesting. He almost does a double switch there where he gets Anakin to kill Dooku by playing on his anger and playing on his fear. And, you know, just sort of commanding him to do it and giving him permission to do the very thing that he wants to do. And then Anakin immediately feels bad about it, which is right. And in that scene with Mace Windu, he flips the script and basically puts, gives Anakin the perspective that Mace Windu is Anakin and that, you know, that basically um, Palpatine is Dooku in this situation. And Anakin has an opportunity to stop himself from making the same mistake twice. And in so doing, he gets him to do the wrong thing again, um, which is which is pretty special uh, in its own terrible way. Um, and so, yeah, and so he convinces him to kill Mace Windu. And this is where, you know, a lot of people complain that then him immediately pledging himself to, um, you know, be Sidious's apprentice and, and whatever seems like a very rapid shift. But really, when you play back, especially if you watch the whole Clone Wars, and if you think through all of the things that Anakin has been through and all the things that the council has done and everything else, that it really wasn't, it's not that surprising that he finally says, yeah, you know what, the council, uh, you know, they obviously came here to murder you. They're against me, they're against you. And I'm going to join the side that is going to give me the benefit that I want, which is is save Padme, create peace. And, you know, the way he sees the Jedi at this point are kind of warmongers and willing to take his love away from him. And, you know, that's just not in his personal ethos to defend that anymore. Right. And and right before all of this happens, we have one of the best scenes in the original, or not original, in the prequel trilogy is we've got the scene with uh, Palpatine and Anakin at the opera and Palpatine's telling him the story of Darth Plagueis the Wise. And, and that is such an interesting, it's a father-son relationship. It is a master-apprentice relationship. And what's really interesting is that it also kind of reminds me of like when your grandparents tell you a story from back in the day because there's this twinkle in his eye of like, I remember that, that was fun. And he's telling the story that way. And 
when you start doing the math and we've talked about the timeline many, many times, but when you look at the timeline again, we, we go back and this was basically right around the time that Anakin's being born. This is happening. So. Um, I, I think it's actually even later than that. I think it's around the time there, right? Because according to at least something I read was that he killed Plagueis right around the same time that he revealed Darth Maul because he didn't want Plagueis to find out that he had an apprentice. And so it's possible that the there were basically at the it was ten years before, and it was right around the same time that he met Anakin was when he was just after he killed Plagueis and just after he released Darth Maul into the world. So when Anakin's like six or seven, correct? Okay, was when he right. was when was when he killed Plagueis. So he's talking about a time you know right before when he met Anakin. So it's even more recent than that. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I. I mean. And, and he tells the story like it happened so long ago. That's right. Right. And and I think that's, you know, he's a he's a really great he was he's a great storyteller and he's a great manipulator of information. Um and even after that when he has that meeting in his office with Anakin where he confesses to being the Sith Lord and talks about how there are things that he could learn, you know, not from a Jedi and and everything and he's just he's so open and honest in a lot of ways with Anakin or at least on the surface and all the while is manipulating him and you know and it's it's again it's really the it is the the sort of true essence of of being a Sith manipulator um of the dark side and so um you know all of that comes to pass and you know you, I mean even in that in that very same scene in the opera is when he tells um, Anakin where to find General Grievous, which Anakin then goes and reports to the Jedi Council so that he can end the war because he knows that with the death of Dooku, it's time to convert Anakin and it's time to do Order 66 and he needs to convert Anakin before he can do Order 66 and end the war. And so he turns on his own team, right? Because he really never cared about which side won the war. It wasn't important. It was important that whatever side he needed to win won the war. Right. And that's, I guess, the upside of running both sides of a war. Right. Um, so what ultimately happens, we know, is that Anakin uh, fights Obi-Wan, gets left for dead, essentially, on Mustafar. A and this, I think, really is quite interesting. And again, goes to show the kind of guy that Palpatine is, is that there's potential dark lords of the sith waiting out there to be his apprentice you know he could find someone strong with the force but with a grudge that he could manipulate and train but oh no he wants someone who will be a dedicated loyal follower um who will not challenge him for power who will do his bidding i mean what is thy bidding my lord how, how many times did we hear that growing up um so he goes, he sends a crew to go and recover the, the burning, singed body uh, remnants, if you will. Well, he even goes himself. Yeah. And, and he recovers Anakin and puts him back together in an excruciating way. And then insists that Darth Vader have his palace on Mustafar as a constant reminder of his failure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things I'll double down there, right? He's in the middle of... You know, he just fought Yoda. Um, he is, you know, he just killed all the Jedi. He is about to get himself named Emperor. And he goes out of his way to go to Mustafar to personally come and, and make sure that, you know, um, Darth Vader is saved and put into his Darth Vader body. And then to your point, he makes him build his own castle on Mustafar to remind him of of that failure and that pain. Um, and and you know, he does all of this as his way of sort of dominating Darth Vader, right? The other funny thing, and, and, and it's not really clear, you know, if this has meaning in the universe, but Vader is actually Dutch for father. And I think that it's really interesting that, you know, at this point, it's not really, I, well, I mean, I, I guess at this point, you know, Anakin knows that he is soon to be a father. And so Sidious names him as you know, with with the name that that translates to father as as his dark side moniker, I don't know if he knows at this point that his children may or may not survive. But it's a it's just just another like jab into him of like your family is your downfall and your family is the reason that you uh, that you follow me um, and forces him to carry that with him for all time. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's not just enough to be better and stronger with the dark side of the force. It is so important to Palpatine, to Sidious, to manipulate and to punish those around him. And Vader just keeps coming back for more. At this point, he's got nothing left, you know? So why not, I guess? Yeah, that's right. But, you know, it's something else you said, too. Like, he could have had other apprentices. We we know that after this, they create the Inquisitors. So there are some, at very least, dark force wielders. I wouldn't go as far as calling them Sith or dark Jedi even. But, you know, some of them are former Jedi and whatever. But he does not choose from those. And, and he, you know, he chooses this guy in part because his strength with the force is so strong, but also in part that because losing, you know, the limbs and losing what what Darth Vader lost in that fight brings him down a level that he can still do impressive things for the Emperor, but can never truly challenge him. And because his mind and his heart are really never in fully into being in the dark side, right? That's the other thing that, you know, Vader is, and, and Sidious knows this, Vader's really not interested in being a Dark Lord of the Sith, similar to Dooku, right? That, that he will be content for the Emperor to be in charge at all times. Um, and that works out really well because the Emperor, to some extent, believes in the rule of two, um, but also would rather be the one on top the whole time. Definitely. And so that, that kind of leads us forward for what, what happens over the next 18 years, you know? So Luke and Leia are in hiding from the Emperor, and we've got these Inquisitors going around the universe, or, you know, the galaxy, getting rid of whatever Jedi Order 66 didn't take care of. But we do see a couple of instances in which Ezra... Uh, you know, attracts the attention of the emperor. And you kind of wonder, is he maybe looking at him to replace Vader? Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, in, in a way, it seems like he's at least hedging his bets, um, especially since Ezra seems to have some different kind of force potential than Vader, right? Ezra has this deep connection to the planet Lothal that has a Jedi temple. Um, ultimately, Ezra is able to discover the gateway between worlds. And and through the gateway is able to, you know, move through space and time through the force, which and is very powerful, very powerful. Right. Because if you could do that, you can head off all sorts of threats and you can, you know, you can dominate the universe even from, you know, before when when he took over, if he wanted to or see what was going to happen later. And so the emperor wants this power. And if Ezra has it, he's willing to recruit Ezra in order to get it. And so, yeah, he gets fairly involved directly, personally with um, Ezra Bridger, but ultimately Ezra resists the dark side and destroys all of his attempts. And then and then he's basically forgotten by the Emperor other than, you know, the end of, of Ezra and the Thrawn incident and wherever he goes in the universe. Right. So we've got 18 years, plus we've got basically all of uh, A New Hope where we don't see the Emperor really. What's he up to? Is he ruling with an iron fist? Is he a mad scientist working on some cloning and essence transfer uh, experiments? What's he up to? Yeah, he's doing a couple of things, right? He's he's running the galaxy as a as a, you know, fascist emperor. Um, But most of that is being executed through either sending Vader out on missions or using, you know, his governors like Tarkin and the other moths to sort of and the and the Imperial Navy and the Imperial Army to to, you know, dominate the galaxy. And so it's really just, you know, it's basically your standard, you know, kind of war machine, um, you know, oppressive government. It maintains order. I mean, for 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 what it is, he, you know, that's his goal is to, you know, quell any kind of dissent and he does that relatively well, but he's not all that personally involved in those things. Though, you know, in some of the legends canon, he literally used, you know, battle meditation to enhance the, uh, the, you know, efficiency of the Imperial Navy and sent out people through the galaxy. But in the, in the real canon, he really didn't do a ton of that. He was more of just the, the, the leader of it. At the same time, in the, at least in the novelization of episode nine, and if you follow the timeline of the Sith Eternal Empire back, what we find out is that he is experimenting with essence transfer and cloning and the and he runs into a problem and the problem is that and I'm not sure exactly how it's is this isn't like a two page you know little snippet in the book but it's basically he discovers that the clones that he creates of himself will not be able to hold his full essence when he does an essence transfer and so um he works with the sort of genetic engineers on Exegol 
to um, try to create a clone that will be worthy of his spirit. And they fail and they fail and they fail. And one of those failed clones, he decides to send out into the world as his son. And I'm doing air quotes here uh, to create um, new life by, you know, more traditional means, um, <laughs> which is where which is how we get Ray. Um, but in the meantime, he's you know, he's working on cloning. He creates the Snoke clones and then just sort of imbues them with his own spirit. Um, but you know, he really like, he, he doesn't really do a, a whole ton publicly in those 18 years. And the whole time he's just trying to figure out how to hang on to his life. And especially toward the end of it, when he starts to get a sense that Vader might, you know, once Vader meets Luke for the first time, realizes that his son survived, he starts to get really interested in making sure he's got this whole essence transfer thing down. Right. And this again, brings us to the fundamental problem with architectural designs in a galaxy far far away bottomless pit architecture why why so much of that well i would argue in this case it actually works out for him now that we know what the whole story was the the bottomless pit really worked out for him because imagine if there was not a bottomless pit right if he had just died immediately on impact or something well yeah like like so imagine a different scene in that throne room where he's you know lightning shooting luke and Vader's looking at Luke and looking at the Emperor, looking at, and then he decides you just like squish his head because Vader's super duper strong or something, right? Or like picks up a lightsaber and runs him through, right? And then he would not have time to do his essence transfer because it takes a little bit of time to pull it off, apparently. So instead, by being thrown down the shaft, at the point that Vader picks him up, he starts working that magic, right? And that that long fall down the shaft gives him just enough time to get his essence transferred into a clone body in Exegol. So while I agree with you that bottomless pit architecture makes no logical sense and really has no purpose uh in this one particular case it is how uh, palpatine ends up surviving for the next what 30 years right and it's not a great survival and for everything that we know we're gonna probably correct ourselves in you know next season's podcast when we find out more but we we don't see Palpatine after he gets sent down that pit until we see him again in episode nine. So we, we don't know what his real goals were, what he's been up to in between. Um, what we do know is that this is certainly in line with what he's previously done, what uh, Dark Lords of the Sith before him have previously done. And, and so and that's about looking for a way to live forever. Yeah, I and I think it ties back to, to two, well, there's two different things I want to bring up here. One is, you know, there's this giant fleet built on Exegol and the First Order, you know, and, and this is again something brought up in the, in the episode nine novelization is the First Order, when it rises after the Empire, they, you know, and, and we see this in the movies that they conscript, they take children when they're young and they, they force them into the, the First Order. That's where Finn and some of the other uh, stormtroopers come from. And evidently, the Sith Eternal Empire are kind of siphoning off even people from the First Order to be sent out to Exegol to man those thousands of Star Destroyers, but to build the Star Destroyers and then to crew the Star Destroyers. And so, you know, at some point before the Emperor died, he put all of that in motion. So if you think about it, and this is in typical Palpatine fashion, while he's the Emperor, he has a backup plan to his currently really, like, his plan's going really well. He's the Emperor, he's got a Death Star, he's got a second Death Star, and now he's got a backup plan on Exegol just in case his first two plans don't work out really well. Right? And so he's built this whole kind of, this whole Sith situation out there and he's built the like the the mechanism for him to do this essence transfer into these clones just in case his whole running the empire thing doesn't go to plan. That's that's pretty next level, right? Yeah, and I would imagine especially after he found out that Vader had a son in Luke that he really ramped up production on Exegol. Like that that seems like the kind of thing where he's got that in the hopper but he's not like focusing his efforts. So it, it certainly does seem like the type of thing that he's grateful that he started. But was he really going all in on that or not until after he found out about Luke? 
Yeah, it's it's hard to know, but I mean, even you know, even the Death Stars, right? It, if you think about how long it takes to build something, he probably started the second Death Star while the first Death Star was being finished, right? And then he also probably started the Exegol experiment while the second Death Star was being built, and then just really kicked everything into gear when he, when the rebellion started ramping up. So continue, you know, he was always a he's always been a, a really good you know look forward planner, and then to you know when he sees. Um, you know, Ben Skywalker being born, um, going right to kind of the Snoke play. Cause at this point he's sort of a spirit out there on Exegol in, you know, that janky body that he's got out there. And so, you know, to use the Snoke angle and to use manipulation through the force to try to turn him to the dark side remotely, that's, you know, again, just, just yet another kind of level to the plan, just in case, you know, he needs that setup. So he just always planning and scheming every minute. Yeah. And, and that was a, a good segue to this next part here where you referenced his janky body. Um, and, you know, just just kind of the idea that when he speaks to Anakin in episode three about, you know, there are certain things that some would say are unnatural. Well, when we see him in episode episode nine, he is so unnatural. Like yeah. the force is really unhappy and it's totally out of balance. And that's how we come across this whole dyad thing, I think. Yeah, that's right. And and again, in the in the book of episode nine, they say that he was trying to form a dyad. And then when he discovers the dyad of um, Ben Solo and Ray, he uses that, you know, and, and he really doesn't fully discover it until the scene in the throne room there at the very at that final battle. And he pulls their life essence in and that restores his body. And, you know, and, and up until that point, he was willing to sacrifice himself because he was going to essence transfer into Ray's body and sort of merge with her and become, you know, this like even more powerful emperor. And instead, he was willing to take their life energy and just restore himself and, and continue running it himself, which is really what he always wanted, right? He only he was only willing to sacrifice his his body to Ray uh to continue living on. And so um yeah, and so so this whole dyad thing kind of works out for him. Um but it's you know ultimately it's about his essence living on as long as it possibly can until uh and and to dominate the galaxy. So at this point, essentially, we should believe that the Sith have died out because he didn't have any way to transfer his essence. He didn't have an apprentice to the best of our knowledge, or if he did, it was sort of Kylo Ren, who's totally dead now, died twice. Very pumped about that. Yes. So what is Palpatine's legacy? I think the creation of Rey's legacy whatever that may be, right? And so, you know, I think I think Palpatine's legacy is ultimately both the true vision of the Sith and it is the conclusion of Darth Bane's vision for the galaxy and also the the realization that the light will always dominate the dark. And it's basically I think this was the best possible attempt at the Sith taking the the uh, taking over the galaxy again, and it turns out that maybe it's just not possible. Yeah, and it kind of makes you go back to that episode in the Clone Wars where we see the father with the son and the daughter. And what does that bring back the balance of the Force? If we're looking for where is the the balance of both light and dark, and then what's going to embody all that is light and what's going to embody all that is dark. And, and that era might be over. Yeah. And, and you know, you, one could argue that Ray really represents the balance in that she is of the Palpatine legacy, but she follows the Skywalker ethos. Um, and so she has the ability to be dark, but she chooses to be light and maybe is the true balance. Like she is the new father. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and I, and I think that's really where, where Palpatine leaves us, right? Palpatine create ultimately resulted in Ray and also resulted in Ray becoming who she was. And she now sort of takes over as the principal force wielder in the galaxy, right? And she has, 
as much power as exists, um, you know, of, of, of the people who use the force. Now, obviously we saw in the, you know, at the end of the one movie, broom boy looks like he's got a little bit of force potential. So there are other force potentials out there and Ray could have children and those children would have force potential, but ultimately like she now represents the sort of the culmination of the Jedi and the Sith and has chosen, you know, chosen her path. Right. And so I, I think that moving forward, we're going to see the Palpatine legacy really pretty much now the new Skywalker legacy. But it, it does make you wonder if any of his other experiments or Plagueis' experiments are still out there that were, were not um, brought to light. And if we see any other issues involving, you know, messed up clones or other unnatural things in the force that come to light, or if we're just done with all of that. And, and now it's all about what happens next. Yeah. And, and I think that's sort of the direction the story is going. I'll, I'll throw out, can I throw out two kind of, you know, wacky possibilities? I love wacky possibilities. Well, so one is really just a, a canonization of, of, you know, like I would love for this to really be true. But, but when he said, I am all the Sith and we talk about this essence transfer, you read the Darth Bane book, right? Right. Um, at my, at my urging apparently. Um, I enjoyed it very yeah, much. Yeah, his it, the, the Darth Bane story is pretty good. And at the very end, Darth Bane also sort of is the first one to discover essence transfer. And it, at the moment of his death, he's fighting his apprentice, uh, Xana. And just as he dies, he tries to take over her body with, with the essence. And it's, it's left unclear whether he was successful, but it sure makes it seem like at least part of his essence was transferred into her. And so that whole idea that he is all the Sith you know, it almost seems like there's a possibility that as Sith learn about this essence transfer, that, you know, they transfer at least a little bit, if not a lot of themselves into the next Sith Lord as they die, which which would mean that really like he like if he really is all the Sith, I mean, that basically canonizes Bane all the way up through Sidious as, you know, as really the the embodiment of, you know, all of the Sith in one in one person. I think that's a, a an interesting way that both the Bane stuff could get brought into canon, but also a really interesting way to think about the Sith. Yeah, well, I, I think what I really enjoyed about that was that it, it seems like Xana, you know, defeated her master, and, and which is really living the dream. That That's what every Sith master dreams about, is raising such a great apprentice that they can take over the mantle. But then they're like, son of a doodle, I didn't mean to uh, create someone who could overthrow me because I love my own power so much. But at the end of that story, she's got this little twitch in her hand. Her, her pinky kind of twitches. And it just makes you wonder, is that that little bit of Bane that is trapped within her? And what is that going to be capable of doing? Does that carry on the legacy? So, you know, that is there any last little bit of Palpatine twitching anywhere out there? Yeah, that's right. And, and it may be. The other, my other wacky theory is if, if Plagueis and Sidious and their manipulations of the Force created Anakin, who is extremely powerful with the Force and, you know, was allegedly born of the midichlorians, you know, Plagueis especially was not the kind of scientist to do things only once. And there's no reason to believe that he didn't do that another and another and another time. And I can think of one character that we know that was born allegedly right around the same time that doesn't have a really strong origin story. Yeah, that's not your wacky theory. That's my wacky theory. I know, theory. and I'm stealing it for the purposes of the podcast. Well, I believe that we've talked about this at a lot of different instances that I do get to take credit for this. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think you've got prior art on this one, but I just wanted to bring it back up. Yeah, no, Baby Yoda could totally be the side effect of his mad scientist experiments going wrong. Yeah. And I think that that would be really wild. I, I, I would be surprised if they kind of went that direction with Baby Yoda. I don't know that we'll ever find out Baby Yoda's full origin story, but um, it's certainly possible. Well, it would be a great way to bring back this old stuff that is no longer canon. And, and that's a lot of what we've been talking about is stuff that isn't necessarily canon. But it would be a great way to be, be able to tie it all back in by creating an origin story that involves a crazy uh, mad scientist, dark Lord of the Sith cloner um, guy who, who just creates uh, Baby Yoda on accident because he's playing with midi-chlorians. He's yeah. up to his ears in midi-chlorians and, and loses track of a few of them. Yeah. 
And yes, and Baby Yoda certainly got some, he's got some tendencies anyway. He, he does, he does. And, and, you know, but it's still that this episode isn't meant to be about Baby Yoda. No, but. sorry. And so, so yeah, so just jumping back to, yeah, so getting back into Palpatine, um, everything's about Baby Yoda now. Um, but yeah, so I, like, I think Palpatine and, and I, you know, we probably have a different episode where we can really kind of count down all of the, the dark Lords of the Sith. But I do think, you know, on the one hand, he represents sort of the culmination of the Bane plan, but he also represents interestingly by sort of coming into the public and breaking out of the, you know, hidden rule of two, um, represents exactly the danger and the reason that the Sith remain in the shadows. And when they come into the light, uh, the light tends to burn him out. And so I think he did what he was meant to do and it didn't work. And whether that was inevitable or if it was because of mistakes or it was just because of the strength of the light side heroes, it's not really, not really certain, but you know, I guess he did his best. He did. He, did, he got pretty close. Yeah. He's still the Sith, Sithiest Sith of them all. I, I think. Um, and I think that if he had decided to stay in the shadows, after uh you know his essence transfer into his janky clone bodies and just kind of run the show from there he probably would never have lost but he got greedy he wanted to come back into the light yeah and that's i think probably the ultimately the story of him like i said earlier he was not satisfied with deeper knowledge of the force and he was not satisfied with running things from the shadows he wanted personal power and um and yeah in doing that he probably you know, I, I mean, imagine if he had continued instead of becoming the emperor, if he had continued to run things as the chancellor or, you know, and then run the, you know, the shadow galaxy behind the scenes, or if he had stayed hidden on Exegol, uh, where, where he would have ended up, um, maybe he would have achieved his goal of living much, much longer than he did. Um, but as it stands, he got a little greedy. He got crossed up with too many powerful Jedi and ultimately died a couple couple few times and I think this last one's going to stick. Hopefully it does. So, as far as relationships go, he he basically once he became the emperor, he, he I I don't think he had any. No, it it doesn't appear to be the case. You know, we we talked in the last episode about he he was apparently somewhat of a ladies man um and that may have been, you know, where he ultimately had children, but it it would appear from this this book I just read that that's not the case. So, yeah, I think once he became the emperor, he was solely focused on himself. Um and so he really didn't have a lot of neither interpersonal nor certainly romantic relationships um that that are that are interesting to talk about and really neither did any of the immediate people around him. They were really wrapped up in their own quests of personal power and didn't have the time and energy to de- dedicate to that, which is probably why they all ended up losing their power. If you have nothing to love, then what's the point? Fair. Fair. So what are we going to talk about next week? So next week, you know, while well, I'm looking at our, our calendar and we're, we're behind by a week. So next week was going to be our special guest star week, but that's a, that's a week out. So um, I think next week is probably going to be the story of, of either Ahsoka Tano or Asajj Ventress. Oh, I'm excited for either of those stories. Yeah, the Ahsoka story could be timely. It could be very timely. I was just speaking with a colleague today about it, and she had never heard of her, and is very excited to learn more. Oh well, maybe that's then. That's where then that's what we're gonna do. Good huh. job, colleague. You picked our topic for us. <laughs> On that note, I love you. I know. <laughs>